Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to a special edition of the analysis.news. It's a collaboration with On the Barricades, which is a news organization analysis which focuses on reports from Eastern Europe. And this is a collaboration between us. Uh, today, our friends from the Barricades are going to help us explain and help us understand the rising tensions between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, it's a lot of focus now on China, of course, and the rising tensions over Taiwan. But the other potential powder keg is the tension between Russia and, this, and the threats from the United States and the, uh, at least according to the Western press, uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine is imminent, a lot of these sources say, as it's reported that Russia is massing perhaps as much as 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian-Russian border. Um, of course, uh, President Putin says there's no intent at all to invade, and I'm not sure there's any evidence that they are planning to invade. Uh, and there are reports, in fact, that the Ukrainian armed forces might be planning something. Anyway, for a Western audience that doesn't follow this, it's all very confusing, and I'm hoping our guests can help us make sense of this. So first of all, Joining us from Bucharest is Maria Senat. She's a graduate of the Faculty of Journalism and Communication Sciences and the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Bucharest, Romania, where she completed her PhD in philosophy. She's currently an assistant professor at the Department of Communication to Foreign Languages and Public Relations at the Titu Morascu, and I probably mispronounced that university. And she also teaches at the Faculty of Communication and Public Relations. Uh, also joining us is Boyan Stanislavski. He's a Bulgarian and Polish activist. And as he told me just before we began, he's still trying to figure out, is he more Bulgarian or Polish? And maybe he doesn't have to answer that question. He's also a publisher, a translator in late 90s. He was an activist in the Polish left, later the labor movement, particularly in the biggest Polish labor confederation, the All-Poland Trade Union Alliance. Since 2012, he's been the editor-in-chief of the Week of a weekly magazine. He's a contributor at the Barricada, which we're co-hosting with, and he's the Polish correspondent for Bulgarian National Radio. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you for thank having you. us. So because this is a collaboration, I'm kind of the host, but they're hosts too. So questions were more or less go both ways. On the other hand, I don't know this topic very well, so I'm mostly just going to ask some basic questions. So we know on uh, just, well, I guess it was the day before, um, Biden and Putin had some kind of video call where they discussed the situation. According to the Western press reports, uh, Biden made threats of serious economic sanctions and against Russia if there is a Russian military uh, intervention in the Ukraine. Uh, Putin, of course, denied that there's any plans for such a thing. Uh, and this is the real clout of uh, the United States. There's a massive military presence around the world of the United States. But as I've said in some of my other interviews, uh, I don't know exactly what the hell it accomplishes, because everywhere there is a massive military intervention, the Americans lose. Uh, the real power is in the financial sector and the ability to uh, manipulate uh, global capitalism against uh, certain targeted countries. And that does carry some weight. So anyway, Boyan, why don't you kick us off? What do you make of that phone call? And, and give us some very basics about the uh, region of Donbass in the southeast uh, of Ukraine, and, and why is there conflict over it? Right. Uh, well, I'll try to be as compact as possible. Uh, 
first of all, the question of the video call between uh, Biden and Putin. <clears throat> well, on the surface of it, uh, it doesn't seem it has accomplished much. Because when you, uh, we, when you refer to the readouts, to the official readouts, at least that's all we have. I mean, it happened just uh, the day before yesterday. Uh, well, the American readout is extremely vague. I mean, it's just literally one paragraph where it just says that, you know, sanctions, if aggression, and, you know, then the, the kind of short, rep quick repetition of, of, of the usual mantra, and uh, and that's it. And then there's the Russian readout, which is much more uh, exhaustive, and you can uh, see what points were made, at least by the Russian side, that is, by, uh, the, pres by the president of the Russian Federation, Vladimir Putin. And obviously there was, uh, there was a lot of talk about red lines, uh, and uh, I think that it's pretty important because quite a few days ago when uh, Joe Biden was asked uh, about whether he would accept those red lines that Russia was putting forward, one of them uh, being the most important one being uh, the, 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 to put uh, to, to stop the eastwards expansion of NATO. Then he said, uh, in a quite I would say arrogant manner, I'm not accepting anyone's red lines. You know this kind of thing. Uh, but obviously he was compelled to at least consider them. <clears throat> and then the reactions in the media, particularly in the European media, I wasn't able to see uh, what uh, the American journalists have published about this. But then the, the neocon aligning or, or the new uh, the kind of the the European uh, media that support neocon talking points, American neocon talking points, they are already discussing the need to consider negotiations with Russia. So, as I said, on the surface of it, probably not much has, has happened, but obviously this was an important step in the process of, uh, and, and we, we can only see the beginning, the very, very beginning of that process to solve the Ukrainian crisis somehow. Uh, now, of course, there could be all kinds of provocations and, and things could uh, could change, but to my, uh, my understanding of, of what happened during that phone call is that uh, the red lines, the Russian red lines, were uh, were, were officially put forward, uh, and uh, there was uh, there was this a lot of uh, threat uh, threats of sanctions and so on and so forth. But in a way, it also says that NATO is not prepared, and America or the United States is not prepared to intervene uh, militarily in Ukraine, in support of Ukraine, in uh, a case of uh, war breaking out between Russia and Ukraine, uh, which was actually an important confirmation. I mean, we had indications of that previously. Uh, for example, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, who is a Danish uh, bureaucrat who is now the Secretary General of NATO, he, well, I think it was about a week ago uh, when there was this very difficult press conference for him when he was asked repeatedly whether NATO would come to Ukraine's help in a situation of war. And he finally had to admit, although he really tried not to, uh, I think he lost like two or three pounds during that conference, really, like judging by the amount of sweat he produced, that no, we have people, uh, sorry, we have nations that are NATO members and we have uh, nations that are not NATO members but are partners and partners and members have different rights and can and, and can only, uh, you know, they only get to have certain expectations. So obviously this was already uh, ruled out at the time, but now we have this like, you know, put forward officially in a discussion between uh, Biden and Putin. 
And uh, yeah, so uh, there, there's more to say about that, but I don't want to go into details of the very conversation. I, I suppose they're not so, uh, so important. But uh, before I go into the historical context, uh, okay, of the, well, maybe not so historical, but at least the last 10 years, okay, because the, the, the whole conflict about Donbass and, and East Ukra Eastern Ukraine, it all started in 2013, 2014. And I will, I well, will I have, recap. Well, before, well, well, well yes, go ahead, I, I, but, I but I think we need to get into that soon because a lot of people can't even find where this is on a map okay okay so in that case, very soon to say that uh, it's it's probably important to look at the map and also explain a very important thing here that ukraine is ethnically diverse in a way that you have uh, russians there and not just two three like an important percentage of the population of ukraine is formed by these russians so it is very difficult it is a very difficult situation from that point of view also because you have this uh, diversity and also the right-wing government, they came to power right after the Maidan took very harsh measurements against uh, this minority, imposing rules such as learning only uh, in Ukrainian schools and forbidding other languages to be spoken in official context. I know because Romania, if you look at the map, we have uh, Romanians also in Ukraine, an important minority, and they were forbid. They were not allowed to to have uh, schools in Romanian, and also I remember that uh, our min foreign minister had to go there. The uh, minister of foreign affairs had to go to Ukraine and negotiate something with the Ukrainian authorities because the Ukrainian authorities, in their overzealous uh, actions against the Russian minority hurt other minorities too, like the Romanian one. So we were directly affected by this right-wing uh, government policies. Right. And also I would like Bo uh, Boyan to show us where the regions of Donbass, because as you can see from here, the eastern part of Ukraine is the place where you have most of the Russian minorities. So it's, a very it's big not a problem. minority. That's, not that's a minority. It's the majority of the population of Ukraine. Majority, uh, I don't know how many of them, but it's an important part. They are treated as a minority, but they are a very important part of the population. It's not like it's a minority of 10%. They are like, what, 40 or something? I don't know exactly. Yeah, well, uh, okay, so uh, perhaps before I answer the question, I, I don't remember the exact statistics, but we're talking about the majority of the population of Ukraine, which is either Russian-speaking or Russian-identifying, okay? And this is this is an important factor, of course, which has to do with the history of the region and so on and so forth. But here, since we have the Ukraine on the map, I'll, I'll as I say, I'll try to be as compact as possible and as clear and transparent as possible. But uh, although it's a long story, but uh, uh, this this what we see right now on the map is Ukraine, which is uh, below uh, below Ukraine, so to say, south of Ukraine is the Black Sea, and you can also see Romania and Moldova basically uh, separating uh, Ukraine from from Romania, although Romania. Romania and Ukraine do have a, a common border in the north, in the north of Romania and the uh, southwest of Ukraine. Uh, so, uh, and then there's Russia, which is the border between Ukraine and Russia, which you can see on the east uh, of on the yeah on the east uh, of Ukraine. And then there are uh, the two breakaway republics, which it's the Donetsk uh, People's Republic. That's what uh, the official name of that breakaway republic is, and Lugansk. Uh, 
uh, People's Republic, uh, which, and, which uh, are which are both which are both part of the Donbass region. Is that right? That exactly. The Donbass region is a little larger, geographically speaking, area than only those two breakaway republics. And, and let me add. Can I add one thing? And I'm only adding it because I yeah, read yeah. it recently. Uh, a lot of in the Western press, there's a lot of suggestion that the reason there's so many Russians in the Donbass region is because during Soviet times. Uh, there are a lot of Russians went to settle there, kind of directed to more uh, Russo-fy the area. And while that may be true, uh, my understanding is even in the late 19th century, uh, the majority of the cities were Russian speaking far before there was a Soviet Union. So this idea yes. that the Russians are just recently there is, is not correct, even though some of it might be. Well, yeah, I mean... Uh, there, there, there probably might have been an element of, of uh, you know, transferring population from one part of Russia uh, to some part of Ukraine, okay, during the Soviet times. Nothing significant, really, or at least nothing, I, I cannot remember anything of uh, any significant nature, such process of any significant nature happening, uh, or, or I, I was never taught about that at school. Uh, but what we can, uh, but I, I'm not, you know, ruling it out. I mean, there might have been things like that might have happened. And let's let us also remember that at the beginning mm, of the the first uh, decades of the existence of the Soviet Union is uh, it, it also was uh, mass industrialization, and that obviously led to ge demographical transgressions, if you like. So uh, things of that nature could have could have happened, uh, but also there were, I'm sure, many people uh, that. Uh, that used to live in Ukraine's west, which is close to the Polish border today, uh, that were, you know, transferred uh, for some reason into Russia's interior. So uh, I would say that, and you're right to point out that we're talking about the 19th, 19th century is one thing. I mean, we should actually roll back to the 16th century, you know, when uh, the whole... Um, Kind of mutual, let's say, coexistence, all right, of those regions began under the auspices of the Russian uh, Kingdom Empire, uh, afterwards Empire, and and historically speaking, uh, you know, what is Russia? Russia, historically speaking, consists of three parts, which is the Greater Russia, that is more or less the the, the territory of Ru of the Russian Federation today. Uh, Lesser Russia, which is exactly East and South Ukraine, like the the, the the Donbass region and the region of Odessa, which is a major harbor city in uh, on, on the Black Sea coast in Ukraine, in southern Ukraine. And that's Lesser Russia. And then there's White Russia, which is Belarus. Belarus in Russian means exactly White Russia. So this is Russia, historically speaking. And uh, and then, you know, there's, there's a long story, okay, like uh, of all kinds of conflicts uh, where, you know, Russians, Ukrainians, Cossacks, uh, the Polish were involved and so on and so forth. In the final aftermath, uh, you know, you fast forward, okay, to 20th century, uh, Ukraine became in 1922, if I remember correctly, uh, part of the Soviet Union. And uh, in, in the 50s, the, pen, the Crimean Peninsula, which is allegedly now occupied, I mean, that's a term that is widely used uh, by Russians, the Crimean Peninsula was kind of given, okay, as, as a sort of present by, uh, by Khrushchev, who used to be the Secretary General of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union at the time, was given as a sort of gift to the Ukrainian Socialist Republic that used to belong at the time to uh, the Soviet Union. So this was, again, a, an administrational thing. I mean, it didn't really matter at all in terms of uh, 
the, the kind of uh, the, the social composition or ethnic composition or anything like that. Okay, it, it was just a, an administrational transfer and nothing uh, nothing more than that, a bureaucratic measure, I would say. Uh, and uh, and then then we have the split of the uh, or the you know the fall apart, the breaking apart uh, of the Soviet Union, and uh, in and Ukraine became uh, an independent state. And from the very beginning, the Ukrainians have actually had this problem of, uh, uh, well, of, of, of what is, how do they actually, uh, how do they sort of uh, put all those things together that they have? I mean, the territory and the people with different identities and so on. And how do they make it a functional national state? And that has been the question from the very, very beginning, okay? Uh, and again, there are many, many nuances I could go into right now. But what I will say, uh, for, the, you know, for the sake of this discussion, I will just say this. There is a very, very significant portion of the Ukrainian population that is either uh, Russian-speaking or Russian-identifying. And by the way, this is not something that should be neglected because, uh, you know, there were even... Uh, uh, there were even some sort of scenarios and science fiction was written actually even about uh like how you know ukraine could uh, uh could fall into into some kind of civil war for example because of this uh major division in, in inside the ukrainian society that has always been there and you know even the the ukrainian authorities from the uh in the 90s like kuchma for example who used to be uh, the uh president of ukraine and the president is the most important figure in the Ukrainian political uh, system, like in the United States, like in Russia, like in France. Uh, so he wrote, for example, a book uh, in the beginning of the 90s that Ukrainians are not Russians. I can't remember exactly the title, but it, it was something along the lines of it, like Ukrainians and Russians are different or Ukrainians are not Russians, something like that, where, you know, you read it and you, you just see that he's trying to make it up, like he's trying to make up a case, okay? And then, uh, you know, there were uh, the other attempts, like colorful revolutions in the it was somewhere, some, I think, 2006, 2007. I cannot remember exactly the year. And then during those, during that process, that colorful revolution at the time, by the way, was unsuccessful. Uh, I mean, it did actually lift up to power certain people that were aligned with the West. But then, you know, the next elections actually uh, took uh, took the power away from them. And and uh, Yanukovych, uh, mm -hmm. the one that is now. Uh, in, in exile, sort of in Russia, a former president of Ukraine was was back in power, but uh, it was already then that the first indications came. Okay, that the West is going to attempt to use part of the Ukrainian population that is unfriendly to Russia, and that is not identif Russian identifying or Russian speaking, in order to, uh, well, to meddle, okay, to say, uh, to use the most general term, and to uh, see what kind of benefits they could make of, uh, you know, of meddling in, in, in Ukraine's affairs. And of course, by the time this uh, colorful revolution occurred in, in 2006 or seven, uh, it, it, was, it, it was already long after NATO, the West, the United States broke the promise given to Gorbachev by Reagan that NATO would not expand one centimeter to the east after the reunification of Germany and and the uh, and, and the transition of the Eastern European countries uh, to capitalism and so on and so forth. So it, it was 
and, and then from that moment, I have to, I guess, fast forward to 20, mm, 2014, because this explains uh, why the Russian administration now is uh, kind of embroiled in a major conflict with Ukraine, uh, with Ukraine's current authorities. Uh, which, by the way, and I think it's important to stress, it believes, and I share this belief, uh, were installed uh, installed through uh, well through through coup through putsch, uh, and and uh, you know many commentators in Russia in particular, but not only Western as well, they go so far uh, as to call it a fascist coup, uh, and you know indeed following the overthrow of of this. Uh, democratically elected government led by Viktor Yanukovych uh, in 2014, Ukraine has really, really dramatically swung to uh, to the right, and uh, you know there there are some very gruesome reports about what the far right has been doing since 2014 uh, in Ukraine and how it was embedded, uh, you know, in the in the repressive state apparatus. So uh, that is, well, that's again a, a whole story, a whole different show, I would even say. But, uh, you know, for for the sake of this discussion, just take my word for it and you can Google it up. There are many, uh, mm-hmm. many articles and analysis regarding that. But then, the, you know, the, what Maria said is very important because the political intentions that were declared by the new, uh, new powers, okay, which were hardline nationalistic, let's not call them fascists, it's hardline nationalists, uh, that emerged from this massive protest. And those massive protests, by the way, in 2014, known as Maidan, uh, this is the word that uh, uh, many people uh, use today to refer to those events, Maidan. Maidan means a square, basically, in, in Ukrainian language. And this happened on the Maidan of independence. That's what the, the central square in uh, mm-hmm. Kiev. This is, is this is 20, 2014. 2014, exactly. 2014, exactly. yeah. Yeah. Let me try to parse out some mm-hmm. pieces of this because it's a, there's a lot of things, a lot of That's processes true. here happening at the same time. So you've got the people of the Donbass region, which is on the Ukrainian-Russian border. Uh, I believe uh, close to, if not a majority, of Russian-speaking, Russian-identifying people. I just uh, want who, to say that right now, Russian-identified people are just 17% that say that they are ethnic in, in, in Russian, but Russian-speaking people wait, wait, in, in, are the in, way Wait a second, wait a second, wait In Donbass, it's only 17%? No, in the whole Ukraine. Yeah, in the whole yeah, of Ukraine. I'm, I, I, I'm but, only but, talking about Donbass. Okay, okay. Oh, be- and Donbass is because, the majority. Right, because I also yeah. want to say that many people after 2014 massively immigrated to Russia, those who were Russian identifying and Russian speaking. Okay, so now the proportions have shifted, obviously, in the uh, in like in Ukraine in general. Mm-hmm. But in but in Donbass, where the real controversy is, if I understand it correctly, yeah. the majority of people are Russian speaking, yes, Russian yes. identity, and, and and have been for a, a long, long time. So you've got so you've got this national identity in conflict with this right wing government in Ukraine. That's number one issue. So there's that over here. You've got the expansion of NATO. What is the expansion of NATO really about? Well, it's really about arms sales because there's no way NATO's ever actually going to do anything that's going to take it into direct armed conflict in Ukraine with Russia, even if I think, I mean, I don't know if NATO even really wants Ukraine because if the Russians and the Americans ever got into it in a real fight or NATO, right now, 
in all likelihood, according to Daniel Ellsberg the, uh, and, and others, but the American war plan was, and Ellsberg and others think still is, that if one American division gets in conflict with one Russian division, and it, and, and it looks like the Americans are going to lose, it actually triggers a nuclear war. And and, yeah. and so it, it it is so the the idea that the Americans would actually risk a nuclear war over Donbass and Ukraine is highly unlikely. On the other hand, as I said in the introductions, the Americans have enormous financial clout in terms of access to the global capitalist system, so they do have some leverage here. But the expansion of NATO, I think and others. I just interviewed uh, Andrew Colbert. I mean, NATO's really about arms sales. It's like every country you can add to NATO, you're adding to your arms customers versus Russian arms customers. So, so that's one set of issues. But I think, and this is the one I'd like you to address at least first, underlying all of this is this both Russia and the Ukraine, frankly, and the United States, but let's talk about them, are ruled by oligarchs. These are two oligarchies in contradiction with each other. And of course, as I say, I certainly include the American oligarchy has always got its hand here. So how does that play out, this contradiction between the oligarchy of Ukraine, the oligarchy in Russia, and what are they really fighting about? Okay, well, that's another big question, okay. <laughs> uh, but... Uh... I would say the following: There is there a tradition was established. Uh, I would say twenty years ago, sometime at the break of the century, that when America, that is the United States, Washington, wants to do something to Russia, then they need someone on the ground, somewhere, someone around here who's going to do that for them, because obviously uh, they are not able to do that from you know halfway around the world. Like how? Unless invasion, but uh, that's out of question. And uh, then they they always get those three volunteers. Okay, one one the, the first one was always Ukraine, uh, the second one was Poland, and the third one was Georgia. I mean, those three countries they somehow decided political elites of those three countries decided that they have to fully align themselves with American imperialism, and uh, they actually did put their countries on this path uh, of uh, like a road of, you know, a trip of almost no return in a sense that they put all their eggs in the American basket. And, you know, it's just, there's no alternative according to those governments, to those ruling elites. Uh, And uh, actually, you know, what do they want? Well, what Americans want from Russia is to, uh, to probably and this is my speculation, of course, because I can only judge on what is uh, on the documents that are a matter of public record. When you look at Brzezinski's plan, okay, then he wanted to see Russia split up into five different countries. That was the idea. So that to make sure that Russia never, you know, this phoenix never rises from the ashes again, that it's, you know, that we finish it off. And uh, I think that they were, the Americans were, I don't know, the West or the collective West, as the Russians like to refer to it. Uh, they, uh, they were on, on the way to actually achieve maybe not five countries, but two or three. That was possible at the end of, well, possible. At least that was a, a, a possible prognosis at the end of the 90s. But then uh, things changed uh, in, uh, in 2000, 2001 with uh, Putin coming to power, who did 
actually intend in the beginning to continue the pro-Western policies of, of Yeltsin. Uh, and only after the first couple of months, maybe I don't know, the first year, uh, when he was able to fully get in office, he realized what is at stake, that the existence, the very existence of the Russian statehood here is at stake and endangered. And, uh, you know, uh, he and his administration at the time decided to react against that. And if you want to have this class oligarchic element here, I would say that they reacted against that. Part part of this, uh, of the explanation for that, would be that they wanted to maintain an area, a country, a state, you know, an economic entity where they could be those oligarchs, right? Uh, so I think uh, that, you know, you that, that's one way to read uh, this story. The, another way is, of course, that, uh, well, Putin comes from, uh, from the KGB, okay? And uh, he is... Uh, you know his part, like his history, is 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 to be uh, to be someone who is you know doing some extraordinary work for the Soviet Union, right, and then Russia. And I think that even in terms of sentiments, uh, it it did play a role. Like you know the fact that what the hell? I mean, I come from the KGB, one of the most powerful once uh, intelligence organizations in the world, and now they're just going to take down my country, and they're going to split it into five or six or whatever uh, amount of different entities. So I think it also did play a role. Uh, and then, you know, gradually Putin was able to, uh, to see that uh, he is actually able to uh to to bring some order into the whole mess created in the 90s by Yeltsin and the West that's uh, which supported Yeltsin for the whole uh for that whole period and uh you know I don't know if you want me to go into that how it actually how it actually was possible for him to 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 put those uh falling apart puzzles together but uh it was it was a long process uh and uh it still never convinced uh, neither Putin nor other important politicians in Russia that they have to break up with the West. It was precisely 2014 that made them realize that, you know, that, that you just cannot trust the, the West and that the West will use every opportunity uh, to, uh, to somehow, uh, you know, go after Russia or, or its authorities and so on and so forth. You know, they, they conveniently skipped the fact that during those massive protests, there was some very troubling criminal violence, okay, in 2014. You know, a snipers, assassinations, you know, and so on and so forth. I don't, I, I don't think we have the time to go into the details of that, but it's a gruesome story, okay, what happened over there uh, at that time. But, but you know, soon after, you know, those hardline nationalists took power and they started making public declarations about what their orientation is, that was effectively, okay, uh, uh, that fueled separatist sentiments in Ukraine's east, where those two people's republics emerged, yes, yes. Lugansk and Donetsk. And, and one more important thing here, soon after that, okay, soon after that, the local parliament in Crimea, because there's a lot of talk about how Russia is occupying Crimea and so on. So I just want to remind this. Soon, the local parliament in Crimea, which used to be an autonomous republic uh, when uh, when it used to be the part of uh, the Ukrainian state, Ukraine's southeastern peninsula, Crimea, okay, the autonomous region, it voted in favor of joining Russia. That's how it all begun. You know, before any, you know, green troops or green people, whatever they call, 
those troops that arrived uh, then uh, you know later uh, to 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 sort of secure the transition. But you know what happened after that uh, vote in the local Crimean uh, parliament? A popular referendum on the issue. Okay, was uh, carried out, and this is way. This is why this was the basis. This was the beginning of, of Crimea effectively becoming part of the Russian Federation sometime between February and March, twenty fourteen. And let us let us remind that the vast majority of the population voted in favor of joining the Russian Federation, and there are no signs of any occupation. I mean, you know, th- there are no uh, armed troops at every corner that have to uh, you know point their guns at people who are resisting occupation. Okay, quote unquote. There's no destitution. On the contrary, because, like for example, Iraq was occupied, okay, by the British, by the Polish, by the Americans, uh, and, and and you know it's a mess. It's a failed state, largely, uh, and Crimea is nothing uh, even remotely. But comparable. it is important to note here that again, the vast majority of the population in that region is formed by Russians. So of course they wanted to go back to Russia. I mean, I don't even understand how could someone. I don't know, brush aside this detail, which is not at all a detail. I mean, most of the population there is formed by Russians. I mean, of course, they voted to go back, I mean, to reunite with Russia since they were independent. And they were attacked. They were attacked. Politically, they were under attack. And then they voted to go back. It is only natural. And I remember that that revolution started, and I actually remember very well because I wrote articles, and I wrote articles about how it was reflected in the press. And at the beginning, like any kind of popular revolt, there were a lot of people, a lot of enthusiasm, but then it was taken over. Because I remember at the beginning, there were children, there were young people, there were people filming, but then, of course like any kind of uh, popular movement that is being taken away by violent elements. What happened there it, it was uh, uh, terrible, just like Boyan said. And also, uh, it is very important to notice uh, about Ukraine that it is separated and the, the eastern part that now wants to be separated from the the part closer to Russia, so to speak, has a lot of industry, while the other one, where there is not a lot of uh, Russian population, uh, is based on agriculture. And that would mean a terrible disaster. I don't know what Zelensky thinks, the current president of Ukraine, but I think he's in an impossible situation right now. Because if he loses, basically, that territory that uh, is industrialized and it's a powerful economic engine of the country, then he loses something else. Let's not forget about North North Stream 2. That is a pipeline that is aimed to go around Ukraine and deliver Russian gas to Europe, but not through Ukraine, because Ukraine had a major leverage because all the pipelines that were delivering gas for the Europe uh, were crossing Ukrainian territory. So they could impose uh, and tax that with a lot of money and also uh, get very low price for energy, for gas that was Russian gas. Now, if Nord Stream 2 is going to be, it, it is almost functional because it's already built, that's one thing. And the second thing, if they are losing the part that is the industrial engine of the country, then I see 
I don't know where Ukraine is going, but I think Zelensky is in a very, very difficult situation right now. So what what triggered the current situation? First of all, is it true? Are mm -hmm. Russian troops massing on the yeah. border? That's not true. If, if okay. it, it, it's not it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. So uh, if you want me to uh, to go over it, uh, like the question, is it true that Russia has amassed 175,000 troops on the Ukrainian border ready to invade in January? Uh, as we are hearing from every mainstream media news outlet, as we are hearing from the Pentagon, from the Department of State, from NATO secretaries, uh, uh, NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg, is this true? No, it is not true. There are no 175,000 Russian troops stationed on Ukraine's border. That's there's okay, no, no evidence I, I, of that. If I, yeah. no, if I was interviewing someone from the U.S. State Department, I would ask them the same question I'm about to ask you. Mm -hmm. How yeah. do you know that? Well, uh, we, we know that because there is no evidence of that whatsoever. What what there is. Uh, there is evidence for other things which definitely are in place and do involve the uh, Russian the Russian army and uh, yeah I will explain I will explain uh, uh, I will explain why and also I will try to explain why why don't I believe uh, the narrative that is being put forward by those mainstream media outlets and and, and NATO and State Department and so on and so forth so first of all uh, you know there are there are no significant numbers of Russian troops stationed along Ukraine's border. I understand. Uh, we we know that also from the from the reports in in European media where European NATO member states they have, uh, you know, they have apparently been shown this intelligence that the Americans uh, are, were boasting about over the last couple of weeks, uh, and stated that they see no troops there, uh, and uh, you know. I I really feel that it's a concocted story, and I feel that it's a concocted story by hardline by some hardliners in Washington. That's my guess. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but uh, the only troops that we are able to, that we know about that are stationed in some sort of vicinity, okay, to the Ukrainian border, but we're talking about hundred hundreds of kilometers, like two three hundred kilometers, even more than that, is in the in the Russian military base uh, in the. Uh, in the town called Yelnya, okay? And it, it has always been a military base. I mean, even in the times of the Soviet Union. And yes, it's, it's a fact that Russians have moved troops from, uh, you know, uh, the Russian interior to that base. Uh, I don't know what are the exact numbers, but, you know, to speak that there is any preparation of invasion... Like, makes no sense. What they are preparing to, and they have been very vocal about it, the Russians, I mean, is that they are preparing to retaliate or to respond to what they claim is a, a, a potential aggression from the side of the, of the Ukrainian army on the, uh, uh, on the two uh, breakaway republics, that is the Lugansk and the Donetsk people's republics. And they have, they have been making it very clear that they do not intend to have any sort of uh, military quarrel, okay, even, let alone war with Ukraine or anyone else, but they will pro protect the Russians, okay, in eastern Ukraine, and they will protect them in the two breakaway republics. And it's the Ukraine that was amassing 
troops on the contact line between the territory controlled by the authorities in Kiev and those two breakaway republics from April this year onwards. Okay, so if the, if we're talking about amassing troops, then we should uh, we should be speaking rather of Ukrainians doing that, not so much the Russians, who uh, you know I mean after all they're just moving troops within their own territory from one military base to another military base, unlike the Ukrainians who are moving their troops from military bases to trenches along the contact line with, uh, between Ukraine and those breakaway republics. And by the way, they have been trapped in this trench warfare uh, for months now. And, and there are reports in the European press, by the way, that their morale is extremely low, that there is a shortage of food, shortage of heating, and so on and so forth. So no one's really prepared uh, to, to go to war with Russia, especially without any NATO support, which is now evidently clear that there isn't going to be any, at least in military terms. Absolutely. So, so thanks for joining us. We're going to pick this conversation up again in a part two, and uh, we'll see you then. So this is the analysis.news. It's also the barricade. And uh, we'll see you soon.